Loom memory fragments. Warp truth. Weft shadow. 995 years after the Cypher War. He loved watching her work. The shrill shrieking of the beasts as she wounded them. The gargle roar cries as they disintegrated. The smug laugh and hoarse profanities that tumbled out of her mouth. The glint of her thread, shimmering of its own light, even in the latest and darkest of cycles, even in the dingiest alleyways. All of it. He fucking loved all of it. This is what got him up in the morning, the chance that maybe he would see her today. Maybe he could watch her work. And then, by extension, he could work too. He could inject some small purpose in his life, some greater meaning, some pixel-sized difference. He wore his usual, indigo sweatpants and hoodie, comfortable black sneakers, his dark blue goggles set to screen cap her activities. Inside a dumpster, he lounged, nestled within the garbage, peering through a hole he'd made earlier in the day. His calculations told him there would be an attack around this area with a 20% chance of error, and he made the necessary preparations. The math paid off. Sure enough, a virus slithered out of the thick shadows of a previously empty back street, a few blocks from where he was hiding, terrorizing a young couple trying to get each other off on a dirty mattress. Their screams, the beast's hiss bellow, triggered the paralysis that nearly asphyxiated him, cold sweat immediately covering his body as his mind was flooded with only terror. The post-traumatic effect abruptly ceased when he heard her voice, Suck my clit, virus shit! followed by the sight of her black boots slamming into the beast, twisting it away from the youth, giving them enough time to flee, half-naked. His goggles immediately went to work, taking a shot every nano-click, which, for a fight that would only last ten clicks, meant he had plenty of material to sort through before deciding on his top five from this evening. He noted that she was mostly recycling some old moves, which was rare since she favored improv every time she battled. Sometimes he gave each of the moves different names, Reign of Terror, Cocoon Crush, Whip and Lash, The Tosser. Ah, there we go. His favorite sound that a virus makes. The death knell screech. She used the by section as her finisher. It gave a bit of flair to the end fight as the creature was yanked in half. She always did this melodramatic pose between the two pieces before the virus corpse dissolved into almost nothing. When she faded offline, he tapped his goggles to end the cam function and drummed his white-gloved fingers on his pants, waiting, just in case, before he revealed himself. He'd spent twelve years being so utterly careful cautious, ever since that one time when... He hated to think about it. Back to counting to one hundred. He nervously fiddled with the port box in his hoodie pocket, the latest toy from Crary, while he continued his countdown. It was basically his only form of protection when he was out working, and he needed to reassure himself that it was still there. One hundred. He silent slowly pushed the dumpster lid open and climbed out. He gave one scan around the area, then ran over to where the virus had its final breaths. Did the thing even breathe? And crouched down, pulling a vial and tiny metal pick out of his sweatpants. He stared at the gravel intently until... There! The tiniest glimmer a tendril of fear that made his throat want to close up. That's how he could tell it wasn't just tar or random refuse. Virus residue, the almost nothing that was left behind. He used the stick to push it into the vial and screwed on the cap tightly once he'd finished. Now all he had to do was... Oh, frag fuck, he couldn't move his arms. 
They were being pulled behind his back, violent pixel clenched in one fist, the other empty, no port box, it was still in his fucking pocket. Something was looping around his neck, possibly planning to choke him to death. This was it then. This was the fucking dust-damned end. The super virus had found him and made good on his promise thread. At least Crary would get a copy of his work. At least Crary could tell her, Don't struggle, Stringer. Don't even fucking blink. All I want to see is your lips moving and the sound of your voice answering one question. Why the frag fuck have you been following me? That voice. It was her. After 20 years, she was speaking to him again. The problem was he had no idea what the fuck he was going to say or where to start or how to explain that his life was inextricably entwined with hers, with Shalot, the weaver, the loom. Twenty years ago, when he finally arrived in the land of fairy, it was both a disappointment and a shock. Sure, they told him like they told the other kids that cipher space was hard to explain to those who'd never been there and that Parsifal looked very much like Camelot, but he hadn't really believed them. Instead, he thought of the factory lessons about the time before the cipher war, of things like vegetation and animals and the ocean. He imagined what these bygone things looked like. Imagine a world brighter and more beautiful than the shithole of Sector 83. Its factory settings of broken-down concrete, tarnished silver tracks, and cracked, faded green plastic, a nauseating assault on the eyes every day. He didn't think the fair could be worse, but here he was, standing in what looked like a landscape completely made out of crumbling concrete, coated in bodily waste products and trash, a bleak, grungy grime under the bruised purple sky of mirrored. Gross. A girl to his left murmured under her breath. No, wait, a femid? He was still trying to get the new words right. He didn't know anybody's names. In fact, they had told him he could change his name, his body even, as soon as they crossed over. He looked down, and sure enough, his skin wasn't the chestnut brown color he'd remembered, but a pale, almost translucent gray color. He wondered if his hair was still the same, a deep dried blood red that had begun the whispers, the sidelong glances. Such an unusual color. The grown-ups would mutter to themselves, thinking he couldn't hear them, but he could. He knew what they were thinking, changing. He knew it because the children in his factory screamed it at him every day while forcing him to eat dirt, lobbing rocks at his head to see if they could break his glasses, knocking him unconscious and pissing on him if he tried to fight back. So when the other grown-ups had come, I said to come away with them. I said he'd be safe, he did not hesitate. He thought any place had to be better than Camelot. How wrong he was. He hadn't even heard her, no, Zir, scream. There had been four adults with them. A balding, pointy-eared, pink-skinned, mallet, noble fairy of mirrored and fancy-embroidered clothes. An anginate green fairy of long, flowing hair that shifted with spiraling patterns. Neon orange on blue-violet that her skin also echoed. A human lady clad in beige plainclothes from Sector 83's central unit and a human knight from Sector 84's waste disposal unit, still wearing his brown uniform jumpsuit. The fairy hadn't been there in Camelot, though. It was the lady and the knight who had taken the five children, including himself, into a via tunnel and led them through a secret doorway that opened up into another tunnel, which opened up into a room filled with rusting ware. Dozens of seats, wires, and metal stakes were crammed into this dank chamber. 
One of the kids started to cry at the sight of the stakes, certain that they've been lured here to be murdered. A solemn-faced girl had gone to inspect one of the chairs and carefully picked up the jack, lightly touching the pointed end with her finger. The weeping child fell silent when they all saw the girl's finger shift crackle phase out of sight slightly and then pass through the spike. She smiled with delight, clearly in no pain, revealing teeth like blocks of chrome, her telltale changing trait. So he had tested the stake too. They all did. The lady in the night promised them that they could be taken back at any time if they didn't want to go through with it. The grown-ups explained that their bodies would simply phase out, like what they'd seen happen to their fingers, then pulled through, whole, into cyberspace. This was something that no human alone could do, since they usually needed a port installed into the back of their necks, directly into their spine and brain. What an exciting, secretive, thrilling grand adventure it had been, in that moment, sitting down, waiting for the adults to stake him in, to cross over into the fair. He still held on to that feeling even when Mird looked so terrible, because there were two fairies standing before him, real and strange, with bold colors and gentle smiles. He kept it right until the moment. The beast came and devoured the green fairy right in front of his eyes. He didn't remember falling to his knees, but he did remember that he couldn't move. His entire body was locked into place, staring up at this massive worm creature horror, sticky black like rotten food and burn marks. The beast had grabbed hold of the Mirrodin fairy and was proceeding to rip his limbs off while he shrieked and cried. The other children had fled, trying to find a place to hide. But not him. He knelt, waiting for death, spatter speckled in bright blue fairy blood. Yoo-hoo! Over here, smegma shit-stain! The nightmare worm snarl snapped towards the mocking voice, and faster than he had seen anyone move in his entire life, a femid figure twirled through the air to drop on the beast's back, straddling it with thick brown legs covered in tiny black shorts and combat boots. A sleeveless black tank top and mop of shaggy violet curls crowning a round, grinning face stared down at him. She winked. Okay, kids, don't try this at home. Glittering, transparent, sharp-edged rainbows erupted from her back dozens upon dozens, cramming themselves down the worm monstrosity's throat while it thrashed and bucked. She held on, whoop hollering, as the beast began to bulge balloon strain under the internal pressure. You might want to cover your eyes and mouth. Don't want to be swallowing this junk until you're legal, she called down. He pressed his lips together but couldn't shut his eyes from the spectacle, the glory that was her before him. He already had blood all over him from that fairy noble anyway. And the sickening splurt-squelch pop of the beast exploding wrought wriggling pieces covering the area for 50 paces gave him a twinge feeling of justice. She landed in front of him, panting. Whew, frag shit, fuck damn, what a good time. Deep throat, he burst out, then immediately flushed. He wondered briefly what his new gray skin looked like when he had the desire to burrow into the ground and disappear. She arced a brow. Say what now, little sprite? Aren't you a little young for that? The, the finishing move you did, he whisper babbled, suddenly preoccupied with how his tattered shoes made it with him into the fair. I uh, I watched the hollow movies of the night execs of Camelot and uh, and they give names to their moves and and how you kill the thing you your move it was it was it would be called deep throat also I'm not little I'm 10 I know what deep throating is I watched the hollow movies made for grown-ups she was doubled over with laughter that's fucking hilarious giving my fight moves sextiles you managed to horrify my invisible friend blue so good work I like your style What's your name then, Little? I mean, Big Sprite. His mind blanked out, nerves jangling him near to fainting. 
Uh, he mutter squeaked. Irv, she repeated. Cute. Look, Irv, next time this shit happens, I need you to run, okay? Like your friends did. You can't just... Oh, hey, Crary. Um, sorry, babe. I didn't make it in time. A tall metallic mallard with cable wire hair and mirror goggles for eyes was crouching by the remnants of the fairy noble's pink arm, streaked navy blue with blood gore. May the great spark give you both peace, Han and Quiz, he whispered. When Crary got up and turned to them, his face was expressionless, an unmoving steel sculpture covered in white netting. It's okay, Shell. You saved these children. That's what Quiz and Han would have wanted. That's what the loom's supposed to do. I can take it from here. I've been sent to bring him to an orphanage in Valancourt. The other four had come out of hiding, and now they crowded around Crary and Shell, staring at the latter in abject awe. Well, Shell drawled awkwardly, backing away. I, um, gotta go. Remember, kids, stay out of trouble or whatever fuck shit adults are supposed to say to you. I don't know. Don't drink and fuck. That's rape. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to head out before the wild hunt get here and clean up this mess. See you around, babe. Blue, take me out of here. The air around her face shifted, her figure fading slightly, and then she was gone. Crary blinked, shaking himself as if waking from a dream. I'm glad I got here in time. I'm sorry that had to be the first experience you could see coming into cypherspace, a virus attack. I'm just glad it left you folk alone. It didn't leave. She killed it. Crary and all the other children turned to stare at him. What? That girl with the violet hair, Shao. She was just here. You were just talking to her. She killed the virus, like, right in front of me. Look, kid, I don't know what you're talking about. I just got here. I didn't see any girl. But if the virus is dead, maybe the loom got to it. It's Cypher Space's antivirus program. Nobody knows how it works. It just does. He couldn't believe it. None of them remember. None of them except him. We all saw how it works. It's a purple-haired girl with killer rainbows coming out of her back. The other kids were whispering to each other, just like back in Camelot. The sidelong glances, the cruel sneers. Fragrack, someone whispered. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fragrack, he snapped, stammered, hands balled into fists. In that moment, he decided who he was going to be in this terrible new world and what he was going to do. My name is Irv. His name was Irv, and he was going to find the loom. Twenty years later. What the frag is this shit? How the fuck? Shell stared up at a wall completely covered in a variety of layers of paper. Maps of different worlds with stickers dotting them. The stickers had arrows pointing to screen caps of different viri, Shell being a bard ass and illegible handwritten notes. Some of the screen caps of Shell had titles like Whippin' Lash and The Cock Ring. Lines of various color codes connected dots and notes and pics. The whole thing dominated the bachelor apartment, since the only other objects in the room were a waste disposal unit, a mattress, and a hollow pad for watching movies. There wasn't even a shower stall or pretense of any food-making or food-creating items. Not that Fairy needed to eat. They just did it for fun. Irv was sweat-babbling at her side. Uh, see, I... Uh, I'm sorry. I totally understand if you hate me now. I meant to talk to you sooner or just alert you to my activities, but then I just didn't, and then I kept not doing it, and then it just became a, a habit of not doing it, and... 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 
Oh, I must look so fucking pathetic. I just wanted to help. Hey, Shell gasped, causing Irv's words to skitter tumble halt. She was staring intently at one photo, meticulously labeled Deep Throat. She whirled around to face him, beaming. Merit's fucking beard, it's you. Big Sprite, the kid, you're... That or the orphan that nearly got wreck plugged until I came in and did the... <laughs> she giggled, snorted. The deep throat. She looked him up, down, left, right. Well, I guess he ain't a kid no more. I was practically a kid then, too. You grew up cute as fuck. Irv reeled in shock and sat down hard on his mattress. Only moments ago, the loom was threatening to decapitate him. So he promised he'd explain everything if she came to his apartment so he could show her while telling her. But he did not anticipate this. He did not anticipate that she would remember him or call him cute as fuck, whatever that even meant. So, she asked, sitting down beside him. So, he mumble repeated, so, fuck, I, I don't know where to start. Like, you're here and you don't hate me and you remember me and I have so many questions. Like, like where do you live? What's it like to be the most powerful weapon in all of the fair? If you're part human, like, which part? Are you a changing? Do you... She put a finger to his lips and he near fainted. Whoa, 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 big sprite. That's not what I was asking. I ain't answering your questions until you answer mine. Why did you bring me here? Why the frag have you been following me? She waved her hand towards the wall. What is all this junk? Irv blinked slowly and adjusted his goggles, skin turning chrome from embarrassment. Uh, oh, yeah, of course, that, the evidence wall. Yes, well, it's the super virus theory. Like, a really big virus or the leader of the viri or some shit? Well, yes, both, actually. Irv sprang to his feet, excitedly pointing at different parts of the evidence wall. See, I've been tracking the sightings and classifying the different kinds of viri. There are some that, obviously, react like they have a basic prog of search and destroy, but there have been a few incidents in the last 20 years where fairy act strange, like they see something in the virus or hear the virus talking to them, and they go toward it instead of running or screaming or paralyzed with fear or doing anything normal. Sometimes they're talking to the virus. It's like it infects fairy somehow. Shell was shaking her head, eyes wide, mouthing, no fucking way on repeat. You're shaking your head, but it happened to you too, didn't it? Four years ago in Mirrod and also in the wild. You were there? How the fuck did you even get into the wild? You know what? Never mind. Fine. Say I believe you, that there's some kind of mind-controlling, illusion-making creep virus out there. What would be the point of it all? Why fuck with your food before eating it? Irv sighed. I... I don't know. I've been trying to figure that out this whole time. My lady, Blue suddenly spoke into Shell's mind through the comlink. You have to come back to the tower and feed. It's been over six hours. In addition, I think you've spent quite enough time with this Irv. What of Blue? You can't even hear what he's saying or see how cute he is. You're just hearing how I have of the conversation. Tusk damn, you're talking to Blue right now? Irv whispered. I have so many theories and questions into what Blue is. Ugh. And now you're leaving. Trust me, Blue's not that complicated or interesting. I gotta head out, but I'll be back, Kay. I guess that's another reason why you have this wall, to remember me when I leave. Shao leaned in quickly to kiss Irv on the cheek while telling Blue to take her back to the tower. But what Irv said next froze her. Actually, your curse doesn't work on me. 
She faded offline before she could grab him by the shoulders and barrage scream, What? into his sheepish, goggle-eyed face. In the tower, food was already waiting for her as soon as her eyes burst open. Her stomach was growling hangrily, and she found herself shoveling rice, beans, and mixed greens into her mouth even before she unjacked herself. Blue screen, the same color as its namesake, hovered over her. After a good five bites, Shell had to ask, What do you think, Blue? Do you think there's some kind of super virus? Do you think some people can be immune to my curse? I think that changing needs to stop meddling and spouting nonsense, is what I think. Huh. What is it, my lady? Are the greens wilted again? Sometimes 3DP doesn't get in exactly, but you can't just keep eating only carbs and protein. No, no, it's fine. I'm just, like, tired all of a sudden. I'm going to nap before I go back to the fair, okay? Uh, very well, my lady. Yes, a nap. That sounds wonderful. Right after a glass of cream whiskey. An electronic sigh wafted through the chamber. <sighs> of course. Shalot downed her alcohol silence and wrapped herself in chrome sheets. They reminded her of Irv's face when he blushed, and she smiled slightly. But then her thoughts turned to his theory and Blue's words. How did Blue know Irv was a changing? A nag-prickle feeling of doubt slivered across her brow, nestling into the back of her mind even as she fell asleep. Twelve years ago. He wondered how it came to this, crawling on his hands and knees through back alleys, shunjeered at by passers-by, following the movements of a slime-shriveled suit slug. It was almost exactly the same as his boyhood in Camelot. The almost part was because he was supposed to be an adult now, and it was probably more pathetic for an adult to be an ostracized fuck-up than it was for an awkward child. He hadn't adjusted well to the orphanage, to say the least. It's not like they hadn't tried. They certainly cared more about him than anyone ever did at the factory in Sector 83. But while the other kids' fairy talents bloomed, choosing allegiances with Averona or the Green, or opting for the quiet life they'd always dreamed of, working as a Mirrodin bureaucrat for the Council of Bards, he just stayed behind. One by one they all left, and he didn't. It confused the fuck out of the Exians running the orphanage, because it didn't seem like he was pining for Camelot or wanting to go back. He just wasn't going forward. Crary had finally sat him down one day, taking him out to a green common area for a treat and then sliding them both into a PM room for a serious talk. Irv, Crary had begun gently. You've been 18 for a few months now. Irv had sighed, closing his eyes. You're kicking me out. Frag fuck, that ain't how I want to look at it. We got new kids coming in every cycle from Camelot and barely enough safe houses stashed and mirrored. You're old enough to help run the place if you wanted, but... Yeah, I remember that time I almost burned the place down trying. So, look, I want to help you out. Where you want to go, what you want to do. I can set you up in a small place in Valancourt at the corner of Willow and Aspen. It's not the best neighborhood, but I want to go searching for the loom. This again. I know it's useless, Irv, but listen to me. The loom's got some kind of memory lock curse on it for a reason, I figure. Like, you told me that whenever she's around, I'm hitting her up when we're combating at the nearest enclosed area we can get. I fucking wish I had access to those memories, but I don't. And it's probably for the best because the loom was forged before you and I were a dream in the green one's sleep. Trying to access the loom all the time is like poking at the wall fire. Crary, this is all I can do. 
This is literally my only talent, remembering her. Maybe I can do something with that. I just need a place, equipment, and a chance, please. And that, Irv supposed, was how he got here. The next time Shell entered cypherspace and Prairie got his memories back, he had set up a system with Shell that she'd ping him whenever she came online, an autoprog, in the pretense of a possible booty call. Then Crary would give Irv the notification as to where Shell was at so Irv could race over and observe the situation from afar. It beat what he used to do when he was 13, wandering aimlessly for hours, hoping the loon would just show up where he was. Then he had started noticing the residue after each fight. Sometimes he'd collect the smears in his vials, but sometimes... Sometimes the fucking things moved. Like they were alive somehow, even though they looked like a single tear shed from a trash can. So he started following them, carefully, preposterously, sometimes on his hands and knees so he wouldn't lose it, depending on how small they were. And by the green one's fucking face did he look like a frag wreck doing it. He sighed in relief when the virus slug finally crawl-veered into an empty warehouse district, away from the press of Mirrodin fairy life. The feeling was short-lived once he realized how utterly isolated he was, and when the shadow stain merged into a squirming shoe-foot shape. Irv froze, then slow, creakily craned his neck upwards, traveling the length of a pair of legs, torso, and arm-like appendages, right up into the head of a creature basically faceless except for a maw filled with rusty knives for teeth. Irv scrambled backwards, landing on his ass. Fuck shit, fuck shit. Stay away. And a rasp croak growl screeched. Stay away from the loom or I will destroy you. And then it just melted, dissolving to a billion tiny slugs that squirmed away or burrowed into the ground and was gone. It took a few long moments for Irv to realize he couldn't shit himself anymore as a fairy. So he pinged Crary with his goggles and weak whispered, Uh, so I may need some more hardware. Twelve years later. Hi, Binks, Shell greets loudly while shoving a scribbled note in front of her. It read, act normal and have a conversation with me while we write notes back and forth. This is a crisis. Oh, hey, Shell, Binks says cheerfully, winking a hot pink colored eye. She's femid today with a soft beard, voluptuous breasts and an oversized yellow t-shirt with the words, call me she, frag scum, scrawled in black marker. Her magenta hair, usually spiked up in all directions, is shaved off except for one hunk that falls sideways across her deep turquoise forehead and tucked neatly behind a pointed ear. Under the shirt, she wears ripped pale lemon tights and gold combat boots. Shal is wearing almost the exact same thing except all in black and shorts instead of tights. Fight me is stamped on her shirt in silver. They stand facing each other in Binks's doorway, night to day, both short and plump. I just wanted to come over and snuggle with one of my best buds, Shal continues, walking to Binks's apartment with its garish clashing of different patterns and textures. Each wall is a different print, the furniture a different color, and the carpet switching styles two-thirds into the room. Also, I've been writing poems. Ooh, what about? More whining about Lance, more ranting about Morg, Krerotica, or maybe it's about the new guy you've been seeing for a month, Mr. Deep Throat? The two curl up on one of Binks's couches, and Shell flips her note over for Binks to read. I think Blue is infected. Can you cut the comm link off between us? Um, this poem is okay, Binks says slowly. But what if you added this line? 
Binks writes, I don't have the wearer skill for that level of bard ass, but Crary does. Want me to go get him? Yeah, that's cool. Maybe if I add more like that? Shell's response, yes, thanks. I didn't want Blue to get suspicious, so I didn't go right to him. Make sure he's debriefed and totally silent. We'll pretend he's not in the room. Shit, I forgot I have to go meet someone, Binks exclaims. Can you hang out here until I come back? It'll only take a click. When Binks gets back with Crary, he's only holding one note. Are you sure? Shell nods briskly and takes his plastic knitted hand. Sorry, Binks. I just realized I also got to be somewhere. Thanks for hanging out. I'll see you later. Binks follows them, of course, but not before she throws on her notorious patch vest. And the three end up in an alley beside her apartment. Crary immediately goes to work, clasping circle strips of wire around Shell's neck, wrists, and ankles. He places a final one through the belt loops on her shorts and taps a button buckle at the front to activate. His hands begin moving in sharp shapes and gestures, sweat beaded as he manipulates sigil code without singing speaking. Shell's body vibrates slightly, and then transparent versions of herself walk out of her, leaving the alley and going in different directions. This happens about fifty times before a flash of fire covers Shell completely and then vanishes. Crary collapses on his ass to the floor. It's done, he wheezes. Blue can't hear you or see you or know where you are. Binks and Shell dance around in excitement victory. Frag shit dust damn, are you sure you ain't the green one themself? Shell whoops, kissing Crary lightly on his panting mouth. Now I can figure out whether Blue's infected or not. I'd love to hear all about it, but I can't stay. Crary sighs, climbing to his feet. I got a friend I have to do this exact same thing to and I'm already late. The Echo Signature and Mini Wallfire only lasts at most a month cycle, and if I don't renew it, whatever's looking for you finds you real fast. Shalot scoffs. Who the frag else would need something that's hardware heavy and mirrored? You had an Averonian fugitive here? Please tell me it's not my ex. Crary rolls his eyes. Not everything's about you, babe. Well, actually, Irv does have a crush on you, I think, though it's more an obsession at this point. Shell grabs Crary by the shirt and yanks him forward, eliciting a yell of surprise. Irv? Irv's wildfire is down? No, 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 no. We have to go right now, Blue. Take me to... Oh, fuck shit, dust damn frag, fuck! Shell, breathe. Crary snaps. Binks, hold on to me. We're gonna pour box air and it's gonna be rough. Crary was not fucking around. The three of them slammed to the floor of Irv's apartment hard, Binks sounding as if she was going to cough puke up her insides. Shell would have usually gone to her immediately, but she's frozen. Rage, terror, sorrow expanding inside her until all she could feel was body-shaking agony. Irv is dying in front of her. Hey, Shell. He grins weakly, his goggles lying shattered on his face, revealing his deep crimson eyes. Violet-blue blood froths at the edge of his gray lips. I missed you. Shell is weeping, cradling Irv's head in her lap. You're the only one who can miss me, Big Sprite. That's why you're awesome as fuck. I'm... I'm lucky that... that I got to miss you for so... so long. She's swearing under her breath, nonstop panicked, and he places a violet-blue blood-stained hand on her cheek. Shell, look at me. I need you to do something. Under my mattresses is a tube filled with all the... The virus residue I've collected over the the years. I need I need you to smash it right now and follow them. Follow them to the source. His eyes close. Irv Shell cries, shaking him slightly. Irv, please, Irv, don't leave me alone, please. I can't go back to this, to the curse. I can't, please. Irv, please don't. He smiles softly. 
I'll always remember you, Shalot. He begins to disintegrate in her arms, dissolving into energy spark, into pure sigil code. A wind whips up in the apartment, its howls matching Shao's wailing. She barely notices the wild hunt appear in the room. There's seven shifting figures surrounding her, their limb tendril arms reaching out to capture the shining silver-red frag that Irv had become. They rise together as one, ready to ride, leaving Shell kneeling and empty-handed, tear-streaked and hollow-voiced. One hunter, all in copper, reaches out a three-fingered hand and sadly caresses Shell's cheek. Then they rise, higher, phasing through the ceiling, and the wind they bring with them ceases. Oh, kid. Crary croaks out through tears, breaking the silence, staring at where Irv had been lying. Shell bursts into motion, flipping over Irv's mattress in one movement and then slamming a fist into the tube she finds there. Ignoring the violet blood dripping from her hand, she springs to her feet, following the slithering mass of virus shreds out of the apartment. She's racing now, unblinking as she follows the trail, shoving people out of the way, thread exploding out of her back to pull her over buildings and whipsling throw her around corners. When she explodes through an abandoned building's window into a dusty loft, she sees the viral scum merge with a figure, upright two legs, two arms, torso, a head-shaped thing. Her thread immediately shoots out to rip it into pieces, but the virus starts to fade, shift, vanish, and she's slicing through the air. Crary and Binks port box in just as the last of it winks out of existence, and Binks crawls to the spot it was, ripping a patch off her vest and slapping it on the floor. Crary, she says between gagging, still dizzy from so much rough porting. Bring your fucking box over here. Binks sings a sigil code spell, weaving the port box into the patch until they both crackle spark. Then numbers, symbols, and sigil code begin appearing on the previously blank patch. Shal is whipping her thread listlessly, gouging at the wall closest to her, sending up clouds of dust when Crary and Binks approach her. Her eyes are blank numb, overwhelmed by the amount of pain she's feeling. I've got coordinates to where the thing went, Binks explains gently. But it's nothing I've ever seen before. Crary's going to hack into the Central Court Library to see if there's any reference to what we've got here. We'll find out who did this to Irv Shalot. We promise. Fifteen days ago, Shalot threw her head back and screamed, her sizzle swirling violet energy and Irv's silver-limbed scarlet glow rising out of their bodies, flare blasting the room as they orgasmed. When the spark faded, sinking back into their bodies, their eyes were slow to adjust. Shao slid off Irv's softening shaft, silver goop squirting out of her slit to drip down her stocky brown thighs. She scooped some of it up absently with her fingers and licked it as she collapsed beside Irv. Mmm, fuck, your changing spunk tastes good, like salty vodka candy? And to think you were a virgin just five days ago, now you're fucking me like a pro. Irv blushed chrome again, making Shell laugh and kiss his cheek. Thanks, BT dubs. I know you're worried about things turning sexual, but even if we stopped fucking, we'd still be buds. I just... Ugh, Frag, you're so cute! She pinched his cheeks, eliciting yelps. <laughs> Want to go again? I can show you how to change the sigil code of your genitalia so this time I can be filling you with my spunk. I'm told my jizz tastes like cream whiskey, so no surprise there. Can we... can we rest a bit? Irv asked, embarrassed. Like, 
Wow, do you not ever get tired? No wonder you need 10 lovers. She punches his arm lightly. I do not have 10 lovers. Come on, it's like six right now, including you. Virus attacks have been on the rise, so I've been busy. But okay, yeah, we can rest. Besides, I want to ask you something. Ugh, did I fuck up? Why is that the first thing you always ask? All having for that shit. If you fuck up, I tell you instantly. I just want to know, ugh, Frag, now I'm the embarrassed one. Like, why are you so into me? Irv turned on his side, pushing his goggles up into his hair so he could stare at her with his garnet eyes into her dark brown ones. Where's this coming from? Who wouldn't be into you? Um, I guess you'd be surprised. Like, I'm kind of the worst. I'm literally a weapon. I'm cursed. I've got a drinking problem. My fashion style is like, whatever. I hate expressing my feelings. My temper gets the best of me. I ignore my problems by fucking them away. Like, people are fine fucking me once or even once in a while, but I usually don't end up close to anyone unless there's also some political endgame for them as well. You, well, I mean, you didn't even want to fuck me in case it would ruin the friendship. We had to have long negotiations, which was awesome, but so rare, you know? I just don't get it. Is this fanboy devotion? Like, it can't have just been because I saved your ass as a kid. Loneliness, he whispered. She stared at him. 404 what? Your immense loneliness, Irv continued. I mean, blame all the hollow movies I used to watch and, well, let's face it, I still watch them. The heroes and villains are always carrying this burden on their shoulders. No matter how fragrant the acting is, it's there, all that responsibility in being what they are. It weighs them down and creates this loneliness that suffuses their whole lives. And like, when I watched them, I didn't identify with any of the leads because I knew, like I know now, that I'm neither a hero nor a villain. I don't got what it takes to do what needs doing. That burden would crush me to death. But I'm not completely weak, Shell. I'm not completely useless. At the very least, I can help ease that weight sometimes, you know? I can't carry it completely, but I can be a support. Shell kisses him on the mouth, slow tenderly. Can I keep you? I just want to hear these ancient ideas rattling around in your head like you were born before the world shatter or something. Though... I do want to know what kind of hollow movies you watched. I mean, the good guy saves people and the bad guy is a mean asshole and kills things. So how do the heroes and villains really act the same? Have the same kind of burden and loneliness? Well, don't they? Their behavior may be different, but they're still carrying other people's expectations. For one being, it may be an entire people's hopes. And for another, it may be all their fears. They can't exist without the other, you know. Don't you ever think that's strange? that maybe because of it, they're basically the same? Sixteen days later. Shalot is chugging down another bottle of cream whiskey, lying on Irv's blood-stained mattress, surrounded by a dozen empty bottles and the tatters of the evidence wall she'd ripped shredded by hand and by thread. She stares at Binks's patch with the coordinates of Irv's killer, then at Crary's note he'd wrapped around the key he dropped off to her. The note said he'd found a single image on the Central Court Library related to the coordinates, and he uploaded the image onto the key. She could access it by putting it into a hollow pad, but she didn't want to look at it anymore. Neither could she make herself leave Irv's room. 
She just sits there, drink after drink, bottle after bottle. While the device shows her just one hollow image, static, glowing, unwavering, dusk-damned, the place where the virus had escaped to, the place where the killer of her lover, of the only being that had the gift to remember her, went. Her tower. Her home. End of Loom Memory Fragments Warp Truth Weft Shadow